0: So a few weeks ago, I ran into an old friend of mine at a coffee shop. Now He'll remain nameless, but he's someone who works at another church here in Anchorage. We used to serve together some like 10 years ago, a couple of churches ago. We hadn't seen each other in seven years since my father's funeral. He asked me how I had been the last couple of years since we hadn't crossed paths, and I had a lot to share. I told him about how I had adopted two children Started taking seminary classes online, sold my business after 11 years, got hired as the associate pastor here at Clearwater last fall, and had had the tremendous honor of preaching 11 sermons over the last three years or so. His eyes were aglow with happiness for what God had done in my life, and he praised God with me. I got his update as well and together we celebrated God's provision. Finally, I told him that, as had been the plan all along, I'm gonna be moving to Portland this August as a 41-year-old, a wife, two kids, and an apartment on campus to finish my Master's of Divinity degree at Multnomah. And he recognized that we weren't likely to run into each other at a coffee shop again anytime soon. Then he said something quite remarkable. He said, Alec, I gotta tell you something. Of all the funerals I've ever attended, your father's was the uh, most memorable. It sticks out the most because your eulogy for your father was life-changing for me. And then he said, you see, I was addicted to pornography at that time. at this point, his eyes started welling up with tears. And then he continued, I hated myself. I wanted to stop. I tried for years and nothing worked. Then I went to your dad's funeral, and you shared how after decades of struggling with an addiction to alcohol, in order to save his family and his career, he sought God's help in prayer, he quit drinking, and he stayed sober for the rest of his life for over 20 years. I sat there thinking, if Mr. Paul can do it, I can do it. I pleaded for God's help as well, and I've been sober in that area ever since. And my wife and my little girls have you and your dad's testimony to thank. I was humbled, delighted, honored, and almost speechless. But that's very hard for me. (laughs) So I jumped right out of my chair and gave him this huge bear hug and started praising God right there in the middle of the black cup. Oh, yes! As happy for him as I think he was for me. In the back of my mind, it occurred to me that I was already scheduled to preach on Matthew 5, 8, which is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So this contrite man of God recognized a vitally important thing about himself and God's standards. Purity is a beautiful and primary aspect of the Christian life, but we cannot achieve it ourselves. After years of failed self-effort, he put himself at the mercy of his maker to change him from the inside out, at the heart level, for his own sake and for the sake of others. And he was finally experiencing what he had long found to be elusive. Blessed are the pure in heart indeed. As most of you know, we are in a series right now on the Beatitudes, which are the preamble, if you will, to what could be described as the inaugural address for the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' sermon is meant to inspire, to challenge, and to be looked back to as a guide. About these 12 verses, Mike has said the Beatitudes are attitudes that bring about God's best for his followers. And what's interesting is that the way Jesus teaches us to be blessed is in almost direct opposition to the ways in which the world tells us to be blessed. It is an upside down way of thinking. It's countercultural and it's counterintuitive. Hence, our sermon series logo depicting a mountain flipped upside down. So, again, today's verse is uh, I'm going to skip the first three, or I'm not going to reread the entire passage because we did it in the memory verse challenge already. We can go ahead and flash ahead to that. Our today's verse is Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I'm going to focus on the word pure. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word pure in two categories. The first is physically, as in not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. And personally, as in wholesome or untainted by immorality. If you're following along in the notes, it's going to be a few minutes before I have a fill in the blank, so just go ahead and relax. There are a multitude of synonyms for pure. And what I wanna do right now is just read some of them out loud for you. We're gonna camp out for a minute on this. As I do, I ask you to reflect on how often you feel this way. How long it's been since you believe these things about yourself, and whether or not you've, this has ever been your reality. So just close your eyes and listen. Clean. Clear, fresh, wholesome, natural, healthy, virtuous, moral, ethical, good, righteous, saintly, honorable, reputable, wholesome, honest, upstanding. Worthy, noble, blameless, guiltless, spotless, perfect. You open your eyes. Of course, there's a number of antonyms as well, right? But I'm just going to list five. Dirty, polluted, immoral, corrupted, and of course, impure. My guess is that each of us has felt impure at some point and perhaps even quite recently. So the Bible uses the word pure in more than one way as well. The Old Testament overwhelmingly, at least in terms of sheer numbers, uses the word in terms of metallurgy, as in describing the precious metals to be used in the tabernacle in the desert or the tabernacle in Jerusalem such as pure gold or pure silver. The New Testament use of pure, however, focuses more on the personal moral view and that a person can be pure or impure spiritually based on their actions. Overall, the term is used interchangeably with clean or as in, clean as in sanctified or holy. The idea being the gold used in the worship of God should be totally pure and set apart because that is rare And this communicates an important aspect about God's holiness. Similarly, the Christian, elsewhere described as a temple of the Holy Spirit, should also be totally pure and set apart, because that is rare. And this communicates an important aspect of God's holiness. So whenever I use the word pure today, you can insert clean or holy into its place, and the idea is basically the same. Really, any of those synonyms that I mentioned, you're going to be hearing them all throughout the message. So rather than speaking in terms of merely physical or personal purity, today I want to focus primarily on spiritual purity, which encompasses all. If you get spiritual purity, all the others kind of follow and come along. Now, the Bible describes God as perfect and pure in every way. Deuteronomy 32.4 reads, He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all of his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. However, because of our fallen nature, we as humans are impure, bent towards error, and regularly fail to live up to God's standards. As Paul said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the message of the New Testament is that only Jesus can make us pure the only way to reconcile the gap between the perfect god and the imperfect man is to gain spiritual purity that is salvation through the vicarious work of jesus christ only his atoning blood can wash away the stains of our sins and only the power of the holy spirit can transform our hearts and minds into christ likeness only jesus can make us pure Many theologians have sought to reconcile the ideas that Jesus is king now, and yet there's still evil in the world. At the same time, they're trying to reconcile the idea that Jesus' his followers are new creations in Christ, and yet we still grapple with sin. The now and not yet nature of the kingdom of God is then suggested. In some ways, Jesus has completed his work at the cross, but he also has a second coming that we read about in the book of Revelation. There's more things to do before the kingdom is complete. And in the same way, in the the way that God the Father views his children, those who have accepted Jesus Christ, we are viewed now as perfect. And yet we still struggle in our walk until we're fully sanctified. The bottom line, though, is that you can only see God in heaven if you secure your spiritual purity in him, in Jesus Christ. And then once you have that, and you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, then you are able to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit more and more. And as you mature, you start to experience more and more of those wonderful things that Paul promises in the book of Galatians, the fruits of the Spirit, including purity. And the sweet glimpses of God that accompany So what does the Bible say about purity? King David wrote this in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Now, King David was a man who clearly loved God and valued purity. But how did he do living out his values? Well, most of you know, he coveted another man's wife. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. And then, when he failed to cover his tracks through a crafty deception, he arranged for the battlefield death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, one of his most loyal officers. So that's breaking four of the commandments in one week. And this is the leader of God's people. So, in what had to be a cathartic owning of his own sin, David penned another psalm. This the wrenching confession, now known as Psalm 51. You'll read the first four verses of that. Have mercy on me, O God, According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I'll skip two verses and move on to verse 7. He goes on, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So this famous man recognized that his sins separated him from his beloved Yahweh, but he owned his sins and he recognized his utter dependence upon the grace of God for cleansing. He knew the Lord required holiness while at the same time knew that he could not meet that standard, so he pleaded for mercy. This was David acquiescing his throne to a higher power and God was gracious and he forgave David and he maintained the covenant that he had made with him before that. That someday his line would be enthroned forever, which of course occurred when his lineage produced Jesus the Messiah. So, is King David the exception? Or can we find some hope in this? What does the Bible say about God's willingness to restore his other children, such as us, even in our sins? Let's look now at 1 John 1 5 through 10. God is light. He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, a little bit later on, in that same letter, the Apostle John makes a promise that is as sweet as can be found in all of Scripture. From chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. Keep part right here, listen. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We shall be like him. We shall see him we will be purified in him. Hallelujah. That's like, let's go dance in the streets. Some of you already know this. You accept it, and you maybe see today's message as a good reminder of the truth. Sin was presented, and the sin solution was presented. However, some of you do not believe a word that I just said is true for you personally. And it's not because you reject the Bible generally or you reject Jesus specifically. It's because you believe that some sin that you have committed in the past is just too much. Too heinous. Too dark. Too big. Too dirty. Too serious for God to forgive. Consequently, you believe that you are dirty polluted, immoral, corrupted, and forever impure. Can I tell you something? You are believing a lie straight from the pit of hell. If you have a sin issue, one that is debilitating, recurrent, that you just can't seem to shake, I know what you're going through because I've been there, and so have millions upon millions of other Christians. If you have a habit of acting out in sin and then crying out to God for forgiveness and then experiencing that sweet and delicate sobriety for a few days or weeks, only to fall again, and you find yourself despairing, that it's never going to get better to the point that your life has become hopeless. I know what that's like have been there and so have millions and millions of God's people. If you look to the Old Testament book of Judges, you'll see that exact problem occurring amongst ancient Israel. Theologians have come to label it the sin cycle. God's people don't just go in a cycle a sitting over and over again. It's a downward spiral and it only gets worse and worse and worse. By the end of the book, after reading about murder, gang rape, and civil war, Israelite women are eating their own children. If you think that today is the worst climate that God's people have ever had to endure, Judges puts things into perspective real quick. It is by far the most depressing book in the whole Bible. It closes with a hopeless statement. In those days, Israel had no king Everyone did as they saw fit. So if you feel hopeless, stuck in a cycle of impurity that is crippling your relationship with God and others, can I just say, my friends, that that is first half thinking. Judges is in the first half of the book. Did you forget that there's a second half? Did you forget there's a New Testament? Did you know that Israel now has a king? It is God's will for you today to step out of the miry clay of your sin and set your feet upon the rock. God sent his son to die upon the cross to pay for what you have done. When you accept the atoning work he has done on your behalf, he makes you clean. And every other synonym that we covered earlier. No matter what you've done, Some of you are doubting that. What about the big ones, Alec? What about pornography addiction, that great destroyer of true intimacy? What about homosexuality, which our culture ignorantly celebrates? Prostitution, adultery, drug and alcohol abuse, violence against yourself or others, abortion or outright murder. Can God really forgive these things? Well, let's see here. Abraham handed his wife, Sarah, over to other men to save his own hide, and he is considered the father of all nations. Apple doesn't fall from the tree. His son, Isaac, did the same thing with his wife, Rebecca. The patriarch, Judah, slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because she was disguised as a prostitute. Moses was a murderer of an Egyptian, and he was the founder of the Jewish faith. The prostitute Rahab was used by God to create Jesus' holy lineage and also saved the Israelites. As we have already discussed, King David was an adulterer and a murderer. His son Solomon had 1,000 wives and concubines who led him astray, and that caused the division of the kingdom of Israel, which has never been restored. The Apostle Peter denied the living and breathing Jesus Christ three times in one night, and yet Jesus built his church upon him. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote two thirds of the New Testament and is arguably the most influential man in the history of the faith, short of Jesus himself, before he was converted on the road to Damascus, was an accomplice to the murder of Christians. So yes, I can confidently state that whatever it is you think will keep you separated from seeing God and entering into his eternal rest is in fact no match for the blood of Jesus. I like hearing amen, thank you. This is good stuff. In Romans 8, 35 through 39, many of you have heard it before, of course. It's beautiful. We read this. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So today, you can partake in the glorious exchange in which Jesus takes the burden of your sins upon himself, and then you can receive his perfect, sinless, spotless, lamb righteousness as your very own. And this being set free is not, you know, from the weight of your sins. It's not just some pleasant supplemental benefit to being able to go to heaven. Setting you free is the reason why he came to earth in the first place. Our Lord, in quoting a beautiful and prophetic text found in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, which was written some 700 years before he was born. So Jesus was quoting this, and by doing so, he was claiming this upon himself. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Now, before I continue, think about how closely this matches the Beatitudes. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God To comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You see, we as fallen people have a sin problem. We must own our sin and humbly accept that we cannot solve this problem ourselves. We must, in our hearts and minds, recognize and celebrate that only Jesus can make us pure. That is the gospel, and it demands a response. So there are three types of people in this room today. First is those who are washed in the blood of Jesus— who enjoy the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and the many fruits of the Spirit, including self-control, which is the lifeblood of all purity. Hear me. Seeing God is your inheritance. Your task this week is to rejoice in the goodness of our Savior. Next are those who have had their sins forgiven through the power of Jesus' blood but have somehow gotten bogged down by the deceptions of this world and the snares set by Satan. Like Peter, after the rooster crowed, you may be in a current state of embarrassment and shame. Remember how Jesus lovingly restored Peter and received that restoration yourself afresh this morning. Seeing God is your promised inheritance as well. Your task this week is to remember Paul's teaching in Romans. 12, 1 through 2, which reads Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Last are those of you who have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Jesus said in Matthew 11:29 and 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your task today is to repent to step down from the throne of your life. Lay the burden you've been carrying around at the foot of the cross. And just like the contrite King David and my friend in the coffee shop, submit yourself to the one true higher power, Jesus Christ. Before closing, I want to return to that coffee shop. When my friend told me about his greatly treasured purity, I had two possible reactions. Celebrate for him. Oh, dude, I'm so happy for you. That's awesome. I wish that was my story. Or I could celebrate with him. Dude, me too. It did it awesome? I'm quite thankful to report that I was able to celebrate with him as God had granted me deliverance from a lust addiction 11 years ago now. So, with all of my heart, I treasure what God has done in both of our lives, my brothers and mine. I did not see God with my eyes that day, but I caught a glimpse. Caught a glimpse in my heart. I close now with a prayer that I borrow from my fellow sinner, Wash Clean, the Apostle Paul. Uh, found in First Thessalonians 5:23 through 24.